You smell that? That is the smell of the Sweet 16. If you're in L.A., it's the smell of pot and smog. Elsewhere, it's the smell of the Sweet 16. How about one quarter of all the teams coming from the Pac-12? What the hell's going on with that? Bet Online has you covered. All the news, scores, and odds, and really the best way to place your bets. And it's free to sign up. Head to betonline.ag. Use your mobile device or your home computer, your PC, your laptop. Sign up today. Get 50% off. It's a welcome bonus on your first deposit. Thanks to your friends, JT and Looney. I'm Looney. Hi. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. The JT and Looney Podcast. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Episode 75. Hello. Hi, Ed. I have pushed the record button already to make sure uh, I don't forget. (laughs) Well, I'm happy we have Alan Eisenstock on coming up. He's one of the great people that I've met in my life. I'm telling you, I wish I could see him more. I love the guy. He co-authored my book and did all the heavy lifting and the handoff but it was one of the most peaceful conversations and great experiences I've ever had in my life in this business. Incredible. And you always gave him credit. A lot of times when the bigger name writes a book, but the other guy or the so-called ghost writer does the writing, people don't want to share in the glory. And you always did, which was cool. Well, uh, did you hear that noise? Yes, I did. That was, but that this time that was yours. That I was. Know, I don't know how to get rid of that. So yeah. By, by the way, remember, just remember that I don't know how to get rid of that AOL song. Even when I, even <laughs> when I get rid of the AOL and just make it go away, the you've got the, the bling for the mail still comes up. So, uh, you know, one time I did a guest shot on a Boston TV station, and my bling with mail came up, and I was looking at it with Raj. And I said, I got it. You know, did you hear that? That's so annoying. And Raj said, no, that's life now. Life has dings and plings. And he made a great point. We're all used to that. We're all used to the Microsoft office mail sound and the AOL sound and, and our phones ringing at funerals or whatever. And everyone, no one blinks anymore. So don't worry my about it. My buddy Jimmy B gets really freaked out if you start clicking a pen or banging on oh a table in a bar. And I love that about him because it's, <laughs> it's true. No one should be making background noise. We're in the recording business. He's an artist. He's a musician. We make uh, we make our living talking on the radio, whereas now I uh, make my living talking on the radio from home. Right. Pajamas on and uh, uh, doing it that way, which is incredible. But, but, you know, uh, but you so you're old school. You think in a soundproof booth, it really should be soundproof. <laughs> exactly. And you're, you're I mean, that and that's it. That's a good point. And that's an argument to be made. But boy, you know, what drives me crazy more than anything is when you're hiking in the woods and people don't take time to hear the birds. People don't time, take time to hear nothing. We need noise as Americans. Sometimes people have their music blaring out loud, not in their headphones, just out loud. You're hearing for those about to rock, we salute you instead of birds, <laughs> you know, or rap music instead of birds. Uh, I was on the Peloton last night. You know, I love yeah. the Peloton now. Right. And I'm on the Peloton and I'm listening to this beautiful young woman yell at me on how to stand up in my saddle, which is my feet and climb a hill, Uh my heart rate at 138 and keep doing it. And I look up and I have 
Sean Hannity on TV screaming about migrants coming over the border. <laughs> Biden and I'm like, why am I paying attention to both? Why can't I just for 45 right. minutes concentrate on this beautiful girl telling me to get out of my saddle and pedal more as I'm watching cable news? And I don't watch him. I switch back and forth. Right. And it's been a passion of mine as of late. I just am amazed. And how I had a lot of respect for Sean Hannity's radio career. Right. Worked for the same company. He is such a piece of garbage I, I, right I, now on how he's pivoted as he sat there. I'm stunned his, as he supported his guy for four years and all of the mistakes and transgressions acted like they were nothing. And now our new president, who I didn't vote for, goes up a set of stairs because he's old and trips and he mocks him and he makes fun of an elderly human being and a president and he laughs at him. I'm disgusted about what a vile person he turned into. And it's all an act. It's, he's sucking on his jewel and laughing on his cross over to Laura Ingram, mocking people, mocking people all the time, making fun of the elderly who are our leaders. It's, it's fascinating to me. I had a guy whose name I now can't mention who really helped me early on in my career. Big shot helped a lot of people. And I had a beer at a talkers convention with Sean and had a terrific time. He bought, he bought the beer. He was so cool. So much fun. And the guy that uh, helped me early on, whose name I will tell you at another time and helped some giants in the industry and thought I had real talent said, don't trust him an opportunist and i just thought that it's really odd how you know he's supposed to be a catholic conservative guy and we grew up around plenty of those some of them raised us right and who would never have put up with you know some of the stuff that trump did they never would have they never would have fudged and said well that's okay because fill in the blank or just ignored it that's, that's not the type of conservative catholic people who brought us up so i'm stunned at some of the things that I just he just let go. I, I just despise hypocrisy. And yep. when it comes yep. to cable news, I just, when you pull for your guy or gal to win and they lose, and then what you do is you pivot quickly. And instead of talking about a new administration, this is Republican or Democrat, right? Instead of letting it breathe and let it start for 30 days and you forget about how wrong you were in your prediction to right. predict the Senator, the Congresswoman, the president that you wanted, you got it wrong. So for four years, even though you thought you had it right and you were passionate about it. And I love that. As soon as you got it wrong and you got your ass kicked, you forget about all the things you said and you pivot to something else and you do it with anger and intensity. I just don't like people that mock the elderly. You know, I just don't like people that make fun of people in their seventies and eighties who fall down. And that's what enrages me about him is that every night, what every night we're going to sit here and mock Joe Biden because he's getting old and he has to read off a script considering what happened to the president before and all of his gaffes and all of his mistakes. We're going to make it personal. Well, here's every another thing too. Yeah. days in or four, six, right. It just really? started. And you and I have always been annoyed by people who don't cheer for the country or don't cheer for a president to succeed, even if you didn't vote for him. We've always wanted presidents. I wanted Trump to be wildly successful. He was not, uh, there's, in my opinion. And, uh, but I wanted him to be, and I didn't vote for him. I want all presidents to be wildly successful, but we've, we've moved in this country where 
we have to start cheering and saying someone's a complete failure before they sit down in their chair. Oh, and before we get to Alan Eisenstock, you know, I've mentioned a lot of times over the years with you, JT, that I haven't fallen asleep before two o'clock in the morning since puberty. I've always been a night owl. I've never worked a nine to five job. I've never worked in a cubicle or had to work nine to five like the Dolly Parton song. I've been lucky. And one unlucky part of my metabolism is I hate to wake up and I hate to go to bed. That's even though I work out so hard, uh, I, I don't collapse into bed and fall asleep. My mind still races. But now I've found a solution to my mind racing problem. Sunday scaries. It's a product specifically for overthinkers and night owls like me. Sunday scaries are CBD gummies. They help me decompress, clear my head, fall asleep. And then I actually wake up like a fully functioning human being for the first time in my life and to buy them as a friend of JT and Looney, there's no risk. The company offers a 100% lifetime money back guarantee. If the product doesn't work for you or it's not for you, that's okay. They'll give you your money back. Sunday scaries is in the stress relieving business, not the stress causing business. And as a friend of JT and Looney, you'll get 25% off. Sundayscaries.com is where you go. Use the promo code Looney for your discount. That's the promo code Looney, L-O-O-N-E-Y, and you'll get a 25% discount off Sunday Scaries at sundayscaries.com. It's effing amazing. You're not going to regret joining their squad. So, Tom Looney, I am thrilled to welcome into the JT and Looney podcast the acclaimed author, my good friend, our good friend, uh, co-author, the guy who did all the heavy lifting for the book The Handoff, and wrote an amazing book on the late Elgin Baylor, Alan Eisenstock. Alan, thanks so much for being our guest this week. How are you? I'm good, and thanks for inviting me. Um, sad days with uh, the loss of Elgin. So, um, you know, it brings back so many memories. I spent four years working on that book with Elgin, and, uh, you know, he was a dear, dear guy, and we had some uh, amazing times together. Yeah, I want to know more about those private moments with Elgin Baylor because my dad and those who saw him play live because there wasn't a lot of video. There was no sports center. There was nothing right. back then. And exactly. if you look back, you can't see it. And I think he was the only player, and I mean this, comparable to Michael Jordan. Talk about how he was Michael Jordan, if that's accurate, long before Jordan came on the scenes. Um. And as you taught me, JT, and as I learned, you got to be prepared. So I'm going to give you some numbers here. I'm going to ask you guys to tell me who's Elgin and who's Jordan. Wow. Okay. Who are the three, uh, I picked the three best years. Okay. So here's player number one, 37.1 points a game, 5.2 rebounds, 4.6 assists. Excellent. Uh, year two, 35 points a game, 5.5 rebounds, 5.9 assists. And year three, 32.5 points a game, eight rebounds and eight assists. Player two, 34.8 points per game, 20 rebounds a game, five assists a game, 38 points a game, 19 rebounds a game, 
4.6 assists a game, 34 points a game, 14 rebounds a game, 4.8 assists. You're- oh, I-, I know the answer to that. The bigger numbers are Elgin Baylor's. Wow. And, and, and that's my guess. And the reason being, and I always like to use the Goodfellas Casino analogy. Casino was one of the great movies ever made, but it came out right after Goodfellas. So people said, ah, it's Goodfellas goes to Vegas. Like that was a bad thing. That was a great thing, but it came out too soon after a perfect. So what happened with Elgin was, well, there was Will Chamberlain around who had better numbers than that. So people said, oh, okay. People got used to those type of numbers. I think the bigger numbers there, the 44 points a game average, et cetera. I think the larger numbers there were Elgin's. Am I right? You are correct. Yes. Those numbers. And also, let's point out that Elgin didn't have the benefit of the three-point shot. So those numbers are um, unbelievable. And one of those years, uh, he actually played part-time. He was at an Army base in uh, Tacoma, Washington, and he got a special dispensation from the armies to allow him to go play games on a limited basis. He, you know, they, he couldn't practice. Wow. So he actually schlepped down from Washington, played a game or two. They, the, the, the league kind of scheduled it so that he could play a couple of back-to-back games. And then he would go back up to, uh, you know, back to the army base. And he told me he hated to practice anyway. He just loved to, to play. Alan, what I find amazing, you mentioned the rebounds that he had was one thing, but you know the career, I'm shocked that he didn't win a title. That he didn't win a title in his prime with Jerry West and how long it took Jerry West to win. And for those who are looking back at Elgin's career, how was that humanly possible? Now, Red Arbach and the Celtics had a dynasty and they dominated the sport. But when Elgin came in, why was it such a struggle for him to win a title? The Celtics mm. and the Celtics, he, yeah. they couldn't match up with, with Russell. They just didn't have that, uh, you know, a, a center who could play him. And also the, when you look at vo- uh, footage of those games, what you see, the Celtics were like a track team. They just ran up and down the field, up and down the field, up and down the court. Russell was, such an unusual center in a way. He, was, he wasn't very big. He was probably 6'9 at most, but he was a sprinter. He would, you know, he created the outlet pass. He would, he would just gun this outlet pass and you'd look up and you'd see, well, wait a second, he's getting the dunk. He would, he would make the pass and make the basket. And so the Lakers just didn't have the athletes to compete. They lost with, with Elgin and even West, they lost seven times in the, in the finals to the Celtics. And here's an interesting fact. I don't believe that Elgin ever won a title at any level. Wow. Oh God, that sucks. And he kept losing championship games. 
you know, I know, I know that feeling so well, Alan, I know that feeling so well because as a pop Warner superstar and in high school playing football, I never scored a touchdown because I was an early puberty boy who had to be on the line. So I know I feel Elgin's pain. <laughs> I never scored exactly a touchdown. You know, that's I, a analogy. <laughs> I still have a chip on my shoulder. Uh, JT is saying it's shocking. He didn't win a title. It's also shocking. He didn't die. What wasn't the entire Laker team in a plane crash? Uh, well, almost. Okay. They, they, they were in the middle. The engines, at least one engine on this plane failed and they, they, they took off in a storm. They should never have taken off in a storm. And they lost all communication with everything. And they ended up actually landing the plane in a cornfield. Yeah. And um, they were, so they didn't crash exactly. But well, they belly landed in a cornfield. They belly landed in a cornfield. And um, <laughs> it's was, not an airport, Alan. It's technically considered a crash. <laughs> yeah, it was considered a crash, I guess. But um, I mean, they didn't have any wheels or landing it, but somehow, I mean, it's amazing. This pilot was able to yeah. down without causing any sort of, uh, you know, and it was, a, I mean, it was such a different time and, and Elgin working with him was everything just rushed back in terms of memories. It's, you know, it was like, as soon as, soon as he, I heard he passed, I just had this rush of emotion and memories about what it was like working with him on this book. And, um, you know, in sports talk, I went all over the country, but other than that time, although I have gone different places, I think working with Elgin was the other time that I spent so much time with somebody on the road. We went to Washington, D.C. We went to Seattle. We went to all of his, you know, I saw every place he grew up. His high school spin garden where he was a legend in D.C. was shut down. It was closed. But the, the uh, Washington, D.C. police gave us, they, they brought us in this abandoned building. And I saw the gym where he played. And wow. Still had all the banners up. And Elgin, it was like the only thing that remained was the gym. Jim was in pretty good shape. The rest of the building looked like a bomb hit it. And... Um, so, you know, we spent a lot of time, not only in L.A., but on the road together. Alan, I'm fascinated, and I think our podcast listeners would like to know about the impact that he had on race relations. And I always talk about athletes and legends who die in their 80s and colored water fountains back then and what they weren't available to do and where they stayed and how they traveled. And I think of this, and we go back in time, and then he ends up working for Donald Sterling. Yeah. He becomes one of these executives in sports. He's an African-American executive. And he's working for this individual who ends up getting thrown out of the league. How did he handle that? Why did he want to continue to keep that seat? Which is always important in my life, that term, keep the seat. Right. And not just tell, you know, Sterling to screw off. I'm done. I'm going to go get a job with another team. Take us through that. I think that's, I think you hit exactly on the reason, which was he wanted to keep the seat. I think that he believed it was such a catch 22. I mean, um, I don't think he was the most successful of general managers. One of the reasons that he stayed there was because he knew he could have that job. He knew that if he quit, he wouldn't get hired by anybody else. 
So it was almost a question of, can I sort of put these blinders on? I know who Donald Sterling is, but if I, if I walk out on this, um, I'm not going to ever get another job in basketball. And he needed that. He needed to stay in the game. And I think that's what, I mean, literally what you just described is the reason he stayed, which is to keep his seat. You know, Elgin, uh, uh, there's a story that's in the book that it became, I think, a pretty famous story, which is early on in his career with the Lakers when he was a rookie. The league was so different then. There were eight uh, teams when he first came to the league, and there were a lot of times where teams would play in other locations to sort of test out, you know, whether or not there was an audience for an NBA team in those right. And sometimes even you would get uh, towns or cities to say, yeah, we'll play a game here and see how it works. So Rod Hundley was one of Elgin's teammates, and he was from Charleston, West Virginia, and he convinced the league to have them play a game um, it may have been against Cincinnati, I think. And um, so when Elgin was a rookie, 1959, I think, in January, Hot Rod Hundley arranged to have a game in, in, this, in Charleston, West Virginia. The team showed up, and they went into the hotel to check in, and they wouldn't let the guy, the clerk at the front desk told uh, – the, the, the captain of the team said that you can, I'm not allowing the black players to stay here. So um, they wouldn't let Elgin stay at that hotel. So the team got together and they said, well, if you won't let Elgin, and there were actually two other uh, black players on the team, I think. And so they said, none of us will stay here. So they all found another place to stay. It was in the black section of town. It was like a Roadhouse or something, and they all stayed there. And one of the white players said to Elgin as they walked in, I'm very uncomfortable here. And Elgin said, well, now you know how I feel. And then when it came time to play the game, Elgin decided not to play. He said, I'm not going to play. I, I refuse to play. And Hot Rod said, well, you know, I arranged this whole thing, and, and it's really because of you that we're here. And he said, I'm sorry, you know. Uh, I'm not going to do this show. I won't do it. And so he never, he never played in that game. He got a lot of heat for it, but it was, you know, people talk about what was the first sort of protest. They said Bill Russell protested in an exhibition game. Well, Elgin actually sat out uh, a regular season game because of racism. And it is one of the conversations that we're currently having today in a much different way in our culture and is that it's conversations maybe that we don't have often enough because as a culture we aren't always comfortable with it but jt and i over the years at fox sports radio had a lot of african-american producers and editors and etc and it you know sometimes the the topic of police issues would come up and we did notice we we, we, we weren't blind and we weren't deaf that our jt and i had different experiences than they did yeah. And it's it's, of course, not as bad as it used to be in that sense. But when we don't talk about things, we don't realize how sometimes daily our black friends go through things that we don't realize that they go through even in 2021. Well, and I think one of the 
topics of the book, uh, as it turned out, the thread of racism is, is through the entire book of Elgin's life and Elgin's story. As JT did out, you know, famously with Donald Sterling, but it really was a topic throughout his whole life. And um, there are a couple of really intense emotional scenes in the book having to do with that subject. And um, it's interesting when I, when I, when I first uh, got the job to write the book, I had a long talk with our editor and I didn't want to focus on Donald Sterling at all because that had been pretty much covered. Right. I felt that um, every time you talked about Donald Sterling and Elgin Baylor together, I felt it diminished Elgin. Yes. Elgin, I, I wanted to write a book that celebrated him because people had forgotten what an unbelievable player he was. Right. Look, he changed the game of basketball. I mean, there's no question about it. Before Elgin, the game was, um, you know, was horizontal. It was just a bunch of people throwing passes to each other and throwing up two-handed set shots. Elgin literally elevated the game. He made it vertical. He did things that people had never seen before. And when I asked him about it, everybody else, you know, had a model they could watch. You know, Dr. J admits that he watched Elgin and he would go and try to, you know, what Elgin did. Even Kobe said the same thing. But Elgin really didn't have anybody to watch. So these games, these moves, the way he shot the ball, he told me that, you know, the jump shot wasn't popularized yet, but Elgin couldn't shoot the ball any other way. So he sort of perfected the jump shot. He, I'm not saying he created it, but he did perfect it. And he played against his brothers who were much, they're big guys. And so a lot of the moves that he invented originally were moves that I think he did to survive on the playground. Don't you think that your Dr. J analogy is almost perfect because Dr. J was an amazing transformational player. I mean, the whole reason we had a whole bunch of new teams in the NBA is because he was an ABA star yeah. and the, the NBA purchased the ABA partly because of his stardom and his, his talent, but we lost him in the shuffle the way Elgin got lost in the shuffle because other superstars quickly came along and the media changed and the media coverage changed and bird and magic and Jordan, et cetera, really took the spotlight away from Dr. J's talent. And as other Will Chamberlain and others and Bill Russell took the spotlight away from Elgin Baylor's transformational play. I totally agree with that. And um, that's why I'm saying that. I think that, you know, his greatness got lost and ultimately overshadowed by, uh, you know, by yeah. his time with Donald Sterling. Alan, uh, before we get on to the next topic, I want to uh, wrap it up. Uh, Looney and I, we, we have different opinions on several things. I am fascinated by statues. I oh. love statues, and I love sports <laughs> statues. Looney yeah. loves Michelangelo statues. He yes. loves statues. Jonas Salt. The medicine people. Yeah, I like sports statues. When I go around a stadium, I like to take a picture of me in front of a statue. <laughs> and I think this book and Elgin getting the statue 
Tell us about that, because with all due respect to Oscar De La Hoya and Tom, how many times did Oscar fight? Well, Oscar, who's from Los Angeles and deserves it. a statue. Damn, I know you're just pushing that button. He fought once at Staples Center right. and lost. <laughs> and when you talk about Laker legends, tell us about the process, Alan, for the statue. I couldn't believe that Elgin uh, didn't have a statue. It, it was, you know, here's a really interesting story. We were flying to Washington, D.C., and um, you know, they were very generous and were flying in first class. And they were, Elgin and Elaine were always kind of late. So I got onto the plane first and I look across the aisle and there's Jerry West. And um, I had never met him. And so I, I, I introduced myself and told him, I said, well, Elgin Baylor's about to sit across the aisle from you. And he couldn't believe it. And so he sat down right next to Jerry West. They did, had no idea they were going to be on the same flight together. And we talked a little bit. And um, I put this in the book, too. And Jerry said, I can't believe you don't have a statue. You need to have a statue. And at first, Elgin was said, ah, I don't want a statue. I don't care about it. But somehow, in the course of writing the book, the idea that he should have a statue at Staples, it just kept coming up. And then miraculously, at exactly the same time that the book came out, they agreed to do this statue. And um, I was lucky enough to be able to write the inscription, which is basically his stats. But still, it was a, it was a thrill to do that. And I was there for the unveiling of the statue, which was a big emotional moment where they literally you know, took the cloth off and there was Elgin. And he, it turns out his statue is really right there at the entrance to stay. Did he like the statue? He liked it. He okay. Really like it. He got it. You know, he, there were a lot of sort of renderings and different ways to, you know, people wanted to uh, portray him, but he liked it. Because Magic Johnson was upset. Magic Johnson thought he looked like Danny Glover. He should. <laughs> he should be upset. Hey, Alan, perfect time in the middle of the podcast to plug the book. What's the title? Where can yeah. we get it? Tell everybody about it. Hang Time is the title of Elgin's book. Nice. And it's called Hang Time, My Life in Basketball. Um, be patient. You can order it on Amazon, but I, it sold out since he passed. So uh, just pre-order it. It'll be coming in a week or two. Isn't that a nice problem for you to have? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I'm thrilled. Well, great segue to our book together, The Handoff, because my wife looks online from time to time and tries to buy the last few copies because Alan and I got a nice piece before we even sold the book, uh, before the book came out, and now it's tough to find it. And when my wife's able to find it, we're able to buy a few, and I sign it, and listeners ask me all the time for the book. And, Alan, going back to our project together, The Handoff, I still think of Andrew Ashwood every day. And I'm telling you, sincerely, because you're such a good friend, the people that come up and ask me about that, I always say that it's my proudest accomplishment of my life as a broadcaster is that book because the book told the story about Andrew and Andrew's name continues to play on not only in broadcast medium, but through the book and he gets awards and people continue to talk about him. What did you learn about Andrew Ashwood as you were putting the book together? Well, I think Andrew affected me as well, very, very deeply. And a lot of the, you know, Andrew had, he himself had quotes that he sort of lived his life 
um, by and through. But the biggest thing I think that I took away from working with you and uh, about Andrew was the idea of giving. You know, when you're in a relationship of any kind, we sometimes get caught up in what can I get out of the relationship. We don't necessarily articulate that, but we sometimes feel it. And Andrew, even from the, the, the couple of times that I met him, he was the most giving, generous person. And I think that he really helped me understand the importance of generosity in relationships. You, you, you're a very generous person, JT. You give to a lot of people. You give of your time. And Andrew was like that, you know? Um, and so, you know, it was, it was a very emotional book to write with you as well, you know, and, uh, you know, when you're helping someone go through the process of chemotherapy and knowing that you're both fighting a fight, but fighting a fight that you may not win is, um, so delicate and difficult. And he, and he did it with such grace as well. Yeah, well, what's interesting about that on the podcast, Looney and I always talk about this is my therapy. You know, there are some right. certain issues in radio and sports that I haven't come to grips in. So I try I try not to share that on my radio shows. You know, I don't want to get personal on Raider Nation radio about my wife and personal about other issues. And there are some people in our genre who talk about going to therapy. And what was great about the experience of the handoff and going to your home in Southern California, your beautiful home and pulling up for those sessions that we had and the ones that I got more emotional on, it was, it gave me the ability to laugh and to cry and to talk and build our friendship along the way. And you're right about that. It, it got me to think about someone that had a big impact on my life and being thrown into the chemotherapy part of it at the end became much more emotional. And I never talked to anybody about that until the book and my wife, of course, I talk to my wife about it all the time. And Alan knows my wife well, and so do you, Tom. And I kind of held that in even with her. And that's why the book was so important, because I can go back to the book. People always come up, and it's not about me. Hey, your career started here. How would you get this job? You won the smack off. The Raiders heard you in the middle of the, of the night. No, no, no. It's nothing to do with that. It has to do, the hook to the book, is that Andrew and I were not talking. We were not talking anymore. I thought he was going to fire me. He didn't invite me to his wedding, which crushed me because I thought I should be or could be in the running to be his best man. Yeah, you're the only guy in America who likes to get a wedding invitation. Yeah, and I like, <laughs> to, count, and I like to count how many times I'm in a wedding party. Yeah, and I was crushed by that. And then when he found out after his honeymoon that he had cancer and he brought that to me, we never talked about what was bothering us. And Alan saw that beautifully in the book and was able to put my thoughts into his words and us together, because Alan, you got that part of it that we dropped everything because nothing else mattered. And that's the, that's the message and the mission I want to send to everybody else. Cause so many people aren't seeing each other during coronavirus. They're right. not talking to anybody anymore. So if you do try to get things going again, just forget about the past and pick up with something new. Yeah, no, that's well put. And, Andrew was also a great connector. He was the guy who would put people together. Yes. And I think that he would, if he's looking down, he would be smiling right now saying, look at all, look at the three of these guys, you know, how I connected them. 
Yeah, you know, he's the one that connected JT and I. I, I, I know. A, a previous I know. program director wanted me to put, put me together with Tony Bruno in the morning. And, Al, and uh, Andrew came in and said, no, he's a better match with JT. And then we went on for almost 15 years together on the air. And uh, to, to piggyback on the forgiveness and forget, forgive, forget, and move on, which is one thing guys are great at as a gender. Yeah. Aren't we? we can get a fist fight and then have a beer on the same day. And Andrew and I had a little bit of a bump in the road right before he got diagnosed because there was a little incident at work where somebody had written something cute on what we call the cut sheet. It's our, it's our highlight uh, sheet that we get before shows. And it was me. And it was, uh, you know, some, some uh, R rated humor. And uh, so they tried to circle the wagons and find out who did it. Whoever did it wasn't going to get fired, but I wasn't sure of that. So I lied. <laughs> I didn't want to. I wasn't sure what to do. So I lied. He knew I lied. And uh, because all the other suspects were really you know, uh, well-behaved people. <laughs> I would never do it. But I had to lie straight to his face because I wasn't sure if whoever did it was going to lose their job. And that was me. And so uh, it was there's some tense moments there. And then he got diagnosed and he was in a hospital bed at the time in Burbank that was on my way to work. And I do know that he was going to have a lot of people a lot closer to him that weren't be able to get, weren't going to be able to pull off a freeway and visit him. And I was going to do that for them. And a lot of times when a crisis happens, you got to be there for people. It's not about you and how you're uncomfortable with life and death and cancer. So the first day I stopped by, I said, you know, uh, when, uh, when we had that cut sheet, drama uh, and you were trying to figure out who did it and at the time i was worried about my health benefits and so i lied and said no it wasn't me it was me and he just said okay and then uh we uh <laughs> we, we, we 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 moved on from that because it was what i was doing there was more important than the guy you know the silly work shit that we, that had gone on uh, you know somebody had cancer and was facing possible mortality and i needed to visit every day because it was right on it was right on the way to work and so he was really cool about just saying, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's nice. Hey, Alan, I want to continue. One of the things I'm fascinated by you too is the cave because I'm doing my show now in my home and the podcast, and I'm really not comfortable with it because I like to go into a building with buttons and lights and there's someone <laughs> at the front desk. Hey, JT, and there's a break room and I could <laughs> gossip a little bit and go around and meet the sales team and say, why the hell are you selling my show? It's the best <laughs> thing. Go do go work harder. And you work in the cave and I tell everybody how your process starts with an idea of writing a book, pitching a book, because everybody's going to be fascinated by this. I thought I had this idea for a book. And Alan's like, no, 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 no. We have to pitch the book. And then when the book gets bought, we can write the book, Alan. And I don't think a lot of people that have dreams like I had to write a book or to be a part of that understand the process. Tell us. And what is the cave? Well, uh, <laughs> in answer to the question, the cave is, I guess, for want of, I mean, J JT's been in the cave. It's, it's a big, it's my office, I guess. Okay. It's, I, I am the only person that I know of in America who can't stand it when the clocks change and we get an extra hour of sunlight. Okay. I like dark. I like it to be dark. Ah. I like it to be, and JT knows he's been in there. I like, I, I have, it's all things are, I have books everywhere. I mean, you, and, and that, that's the cave. The cave is me, a lot of writing implements, Paper, books, pencils, okay. 
computer and dark. It, you know, it's my version of the Batcave, except okay. it's okay. Um, <laughs> and um, I like, I just love coming in. I, I have the opposite reaction as you, JT. I mean, COVID really, in terms of my life and my work, didn't really change much. <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, I still go in the same exact places I always go, the cave. Um, in terms of the process of selling a book, you're right. I mean, you get an idea for a book, and the first thing you have to do is scrutinize the idea and make sure that there's, it is, in fact, a book and not just a, a good idea or a magazine article or something. It has to be really um, thought out and fleshed out. And once you have that um, commitment to it being a good idea, as you did, um, with your sort of, you know, your life story and your relationship with Andrew, um, unless you want to write the whole thing on spec, unless you want to write 300 pages for free, which I can't afford to do, you have to sell it to a publisher. And the way you do that is you write what's called the proposal. And the proposal is generally made up of an outline of the book and a sample chapter of what the book, you know, what, what, so you can show what the storytelling will be and what the writing will be. It can take anywhere, I don't remember exactly how long our proposal was, maybe around 30 pages or so. But it was actually an interesting thread on Twitter this week in which editors and agents were talking about how many proposals does the average editor get per week? And it's about between 15 and 20. So, and they admit that they don't read half of them, or they'll read the first paragraph. So the key thing to do is to write a proposal that just grabs an editor right away. And um, we were very lucky because uh, we found a good publisher and a good editor who, uh, you know, bought the book. And, and that was really the, I mean, that's the process is you got to, and I, I do find writing the proposal in many ways harder than writing the book. Yeah, this is very important for everybody listening that wants to follow a path because I wasn't aware of it. And then when we started putting the proposal together and Alan wrote it and brilliantly, that was the hook. It was like going big fishing where you, you, I wanted this to be my legacy play. And in order for that to happen, it had to happen by someone as successful as Alan with so many books and so many accomplishments to set the hook and get this sold. And once we did, and Alan did, then Alan, we were able to go to work and start the process, but you had to deal with the timeline. I had to come see you. We yeah. had a lot of work done. We had to talk at night and then tell everybody what that process is like when the clock is ticking and you got to turn in pages and you got to get this thing eventually done. What's that pressure like? Right. Well, it's, it's, it, it can be a lot of pressure because what happens is, is after a publisher buys a book, it becomes like a sales, uh, it's, like a, it's like a sales product. There's literally a catalog and there's literally a time when the book will come out. So, and then there's a sales force that goes out and sells the book. Well, meanwhile, you know, you get a big contract. You get this thick contract made up of all these pages. I don't care. They're all the same thing. Everything, it's the same thing in every contract. All I care about is, you know, 
I call it um, DWP, the deadline word count and the payment. I want to know what the payment is. I want to know when's the deadline. And I want to know how many words. So what's in the contract, and people don't know this, is there is literally the, the date by which you have to give, you have to hand in the finished book. And then there's the word count. Books have a word count. They want you to write a certain amount of words. And in our case, it may have been 60 or 65,000 words. So working with you, JT, you have a regular job. So we had to work around your schedule and you were uh, you know, kind enough and, and we went to Vegas, we spent time in Vegas. And so I would, we would find, and the other thing is you were committed to it. You knew that you had to do this uh, by a certain date and you, were, you went all in. But at the same time, you had to prepare your, your shows and you had to get enough rest. And so um, it, it's a process of really trying to work together in, a, in this time frame, And my work in TV prepared me for this. Yeah. Because, you know, I, you know, I did sitcoms for 25 years. You did Sanford and Son. I saw that on your IMDb. Yeah, I, I was 11. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so um, but, you know, you have a, it's like, it's like you're constantly, the train is moving. You get on that train on, on Monday and by Friday, there, you know, you're going to be shooting this show. So you've got to have the discipline to do it. And so okay. the one thing I took away from uh, TV for sure was being conscious of deadlines and being self-disciplined and knowing that, you know, I had to get this done in time. What happens when the clock is ticking? There's a deadline. You got to in, get into the cave and finish this book. And there's a forest fire behind your house. Yeah, well, it happened to me almost, and I had I was in the port in the process of writing a book, and um, I had some very close friends who said, "Come live with us." And then there was a place in uh, Santa Monica called the Office that I've gone to, which is a sort of shared office space, and I worked there. So, in other words, I didn't stop. Wow, Alan, did you know eBay was originally a place to sell sneakers? Whether rare, dead stock, or the latest release, you can find the exact shoe you're looking for at eBay. There is still a big sneaker outlet. I don't know if you knew this. And authenticity is what they guarantee at eBay with your sneakers. They're meticulously inspected by independent, professional authenticators. It's a team of guys, experienced sneaker authenticators, verifying the box, the logo, the stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Every sneaker gets an authenticity guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. If you are a sneaker seller, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers of $100 or more, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Pretty cool. Go to ebay.com sneakers. Check it out. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value Unique selection and authenticity. Hey, Alan, now let's jump into the music playlist, which you have a big <laughs> career and a lot of things going on. But when I get your playlist every week, I love it. I'm, I'm going through this music path. My wife got me an Alexa Globe oh. for Christmas, which I just say, Alexa, play 
Bob Seeger, Alexa, play this or that. I'm able to download your playlist, smoke a cigar, and listen to it. And how did you come up with this concept? I know you're really excited about it. It's a passion play. It is. It's a complete. It's a passion play. Well, this, it's this week celebrated one year of my playlist. Wow. One year, and um, it seems insane. And well, what happened was ago when uh, Gavin Newsom said, okay, everybody, you're sheltering in place because of this thing called COVID, somebody sent me a playlist of about six or seven songs. And, you know, I love music ever since I was a little kid. And uh, I had been doing playlists for friends. I did one for my birthday. I did one for my wife and, you know, for her birthday. And somebody sent me this playlist of about six or seven songs, uh, kind of about COVID. And I said, yeah, that's pretty good. I think I can do that. And so for just as a lark, I put together a, a pl- my first playlist or, or one of the first ones had to do with, there was a, some people had died of COVID. John Prine had died and Adam Schlesinger of the group Fountains of Wayne had died. And so I um, put together this playlist and I sent it to my daughter and my son and, uh, and then a couple of cousins and, you know, and I just said, nah, I'll do it for fun every week. So I started doing it for a few weeks. And then my daughter said, Daddy, I love your playlists. We all do. And I said, what do you mean we? And she said, well, no, I gave it to my boss and some friends, and we all love it. Can you make them longer? Because we need them about an hour long so we can do it during our walk. And I said, oh, all right. And my wife, Bobby, said, yeah, and I need some context. I don't know half these songs. Ah, and I said, context, what is that? And I said, oh, liner notes. So that every week I started thinking of a theme and I expanded it to about an hour. And I would think of, you know, I don't know, let's say the theme was, uh, you know, I love baseball. I was missing baseball this time last year. So I did a Boston Red Sox, Boston-based theme of songs won by the group Boston and I did you know James Taylor song and I did um you know Dirty Water and then the next week was you know uh uh something let's say I had an idea to do a mask based um mask so I would do you know the first song was the theme from Zorro and then I would (laughs) (laughs) I would do you know uh My Eyes Adore You or you know the first time I ever I saw your face. And so it just kept expanding. And I started hearing from people I hadn't heard from in years, high school friends I had lost touch with. I started sending it out. And then a local, a, a news reporter from who used to work locally on the local paper here started doing a e-newsletter called Circling the News, and she, Sue Pascoe is her name, she said, can I include your playlists? So she now includes it. The playlist now goes out in, when you combine her uh, newsletter and the email, I, it, 2,000 people a week get it. Yeah, I got it. Hey, you know, here's one thing that writers need to hear about. Isn't your passion play with this playlist that you stumbled into thanks to the stay-at-home orders isn't it also part of the exercise of writing every day, right? You know, you don't, you don't just become an author overnight. You do it because writing like, like, like Kobe scoring 81 points as JT's son said, how do you do that? And JT answered practice. Isn't part of your playlist and your passion with this playlist 
part of the exercise of writing every day. A hundred percent. Absolutely, Tom. And also, in my case, I write a lot of books in other people's voices. I love it, and I get lost in the voice, whether it's Elgin Baylor or whether it's JT the Brick. And sometimes I want to hear my own voice. Exactly. <laughs> and so, um, in addition, when I was younger, I always wanted to have a column. I couldn't figure out what it would be. I had no idea. So I bumped into a neighbor the other day, and she said, oh, I love your column. And I, ah. said, I said, what column are you talking about? And she said, oh, you know, the, the thing I read every week about the, the songs. And I said, oh, oh, do you like listening to those? She said, you can listen to them. And I said, yeah. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> so the answer is really yes. It's not only an opportunity to sort of, it, it, it's expanding my sort of range, I guess. And um, I just like having this opportunity to put something in my own voice. And, and it's fun. I mean, I really enjoy doing it. And again, it's on deadline. So yeah. I, have to, I have to make sure I get it done by, you know, it goes out noon on Friday. Finally, as we wrap it up, I just want to say, Alan's such a good friend that, yeah, he doesn't give you too much because I always ask him, what's next? What are you writing next? Right. Right? And he doesn't give me anything. He says, well, I'm kind of working on this thing <laughs> with a lawyer and this story on that. And I'm like, what? why can't you tell me? Because he's so loyal to his publisher and his project. Can you nice. leave us, Alan Eisenstock, with a tease? Something that's coming out, something right. that you're working on because I love all your work. What do you who, got? Who exactly are you ghostwriting for next? <laughs> okay, well this is <laughs> well this is a book that I'm very proud of and it's coming out September 14th. It's called Redeeming Justice. And it's an incredibly gripping story of a young man. He was a young man at the time. His name is Jared Adams. When he was 17 years old, he went to a party on a college campus and he had consensual sex. He's African-American. He had consensual sex with a white girl on campus. Six weeks later, he was charged with rape. And a crime that he not only didn't commit, did not exist. He was sentenced to 28 years in federal prison in the state of Wisconsin. Um, prison, and after 10 years, he got out with the help of the uh, Wisconsin Innocence Project. He became college. He went to law school, and now he's a lawyer at doing exactly what he was doing in prison, helping people, innocent people get out. And this, so it's his story. And it's um, wow. very emotional. It's very gripping. People have the, the early sort of reviews and buzz has been unbelievable. And they've said, you know, we've We've been inside prison before, but we've never seen it like this. And um, sounds like a movie. Yeah, it's it's well, maybe it will be. I don't know, but it's it come it's coming out September fourteenth. It's called Redeeming Justice. Alan, actually, to me, it sounds like a good book, Alan. That's what it sounds like—a good book, good yeah, juicy because, book. <laughs> because every time after I've had a few vodkas, I always say. Who hasn't bought our book yet for a movie? I mean, I know Brad Pitt's exactly. not 
going to play me, but <laughs> someone could play Andrew. Someone should play Andrew. And uh, I think George Clooney plays you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the great Alan Eisenstock. Thanks for joining us on the JT and Looney podcast. The JT and Looney podcast has been presented by Bet Online. Check them out at betonline.ag. I sounded like Don Pardo there. Should I do that again? Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.